Hello and welcome to Sonographers Spill the Tea, where we're here to discuss all things ultrasound, particularly safety in sonography and cap the caseload. We're here to uplift, educate, and foster a community of wellness and realness in ultrasound. And you'll get no shortage of real talk from me, your host, Joanna Hall. Disclaimer, real talk can get explicit at times, so this podcast may not always be suitable for tiny human ears. Now, let's get into this week's Tea in Sonography. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Sonographers Spill the Tea. It is officially October, and so we are into Medical Ultrasound Awareness Month, hashtag M-U-A-M all day. And we are so fortunate to have a veteran in the game. She's been in the ultrasound industry for almost four decades, and she's going to share and spill some really amazing tea that kind of pivots over into that application tea. So I'm so excited for you guys to hear her, to meet her. This is Lisa <laughs> Baychan with so many letters behind your name. We can go ahead and start naming them all off. Let's see. We've got the BA. We've got the RDMS. We've got the RDCS. We've got the RVT. We've got the RT. CTIC. There's so many letters there. You are so <laughs> amazing and qualified in this industry. Thanks for taking some time to hang out with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Tell me, what is the journey like to get 20 letters behind your name and then pivot to applications? What does that look like? I think I'm a professional student. (laughs) I always loved learning new things. And um, in this field, you have to accept the fact that you will learn new things and be learning new things all the time new ways to do things, new ways to document things, new technologies. But I always knew that I wanted to teach and do research. I always knew that. Um, So I made my career choices based on knowing myself and knowing what I wanted. So I liked academia. So I decided to keep pursuing that. For sonographers that enjoy academia, unfortunately, we don't have a master's in sonography. As a, as a general pathway, I think that there are two universities that offer masters, none in the country that offer PhDs, which would make you a sonologist. I actually applied for a PhD program in Sweden because I speak Swedish. So for me, that would have been wonderful being near my relatives over there and being at the forefront of ultrasound, not only in education, but in the technology. But tragically, I did not get in. So here we are. I still keep learning all the time. And um, I'm currently involved in research in different areas. I love that you are a lifelong learner because that is critical, not only just in the medical field itself, but for sonographers, right? We're always dealing with our CMEs, but like you said, the technology is constantly evolving. Um, The language is always evolving. There's always something new. And so to be at your best in ultrasound, you really want to embrace academia because you will not get away from it. That's right. That's right. So 36 years, 
tell me about some of the scams that have just popped out at you that you still remember all this time later? Well, I started way back when uh, with what we call B scanning. And that's where we used static scanning. And we did four patients a day <laughs> because they took two hours a piece. Wow. Um, and that was long before we had real time. Some of the interesting cases that I've had, I had a young 10-year-old that we followed for quite some time because he was a victim of gang violence and he had a bullet stuck in the apex of his heart and they couldn't remove it. So we kept following him for infections and LV function and ejection fractions and any type of leaky valves. Um, and he got to the point where his biggest thrill was to come in and type his own name in MRN number into the ultrasound machine. <laughs> so he was really a precious young man. And I, I think about him all the time and wonder, you know, now that he's an adult, what, what has he done with his life? And uh, hopefully he's still alive. Um, sometimes coming out of that environment um, shortens your longevity, tragically. I had a child, a baby that was a true hermaphrodite. Wow. And that was very interesting. I had a, th this is probably one of the weirdest situations. We had what was on the schedule, a 21 year old male, and he came in with both his parents and he'd been having some blood, just some blood coming out of the genitalia area. So that was odd. So we filled his bladder and we thought that we were going to find maybe prostatitis, um, maybe some orchitis, something like that, you know, in the male genital region. Well, we filled the pelvis and found the uterus. That's what I was waiting to come out of your mouth. I'm like, we yeah. found the uterus. <laughs> the uterus, yep. So I got to ask, so which gonads did he have? Did they hang out or were they attached at the end of the corneas? Where were those gonads? <laughs> Well, he had some very, very small ovaries, but the, the thing is to look at this person, he had a beard, you know, he, he was raised male. So I went in and told the radiologist, <laughs> I'm like, I'm a tad bit confused. Funny story. Um, I, my impression yeah. page isn't long enough for this. So I came to have a little chat with you before you call me and go, exactly. Huh? You did the wrong patient. <laughs> and uh, so then I said, well, naturally the question comes up, what does the external genitalia look like? And I said, I feel very uncomfortable at this point asking that, the patient that question. So the radiologist is like, you sit here and watch the monitor and I'll go in and take care of it. The radiologist came back in and scratched his head and oh, he Lord. said, um, well, there's something there, but I don't know how to describe it. And well, that I, helps when that's what the radiologist says. That way, when you go <laughs> good, because me neither, uh, it goes over a little smoother. That's right. And since I wasn't in the room. Now, 
the family dynamic was a little different. The father was some kind of uh, elevated position within the Air Force and very manly man type guy. The mom was kind of a milk toast. She was very meek, very small, no makeup. You know, she looked like being married to him was a tough life. And uh, I could not for the life of me understand why after changing his diapers and going to the pediatrician that somehow this abnormality managed to slip by. Yeah, that's, uh, that's odd. There's a lot of yeah. providers from birth to adulthood um, mm -hmm. that I would imagine should have made that call. It should have been very well documented throughout his exactly. medical record. Exactly. There should have been no question at the age of 21. Right. Um, yeah, he's, he, he's a big boy at that point. Yeah. So parents went in to meet with the radiologist and the patient and um, explained what was going on. And Mr. Major in the Air Force blew his stack and wanted to know the only thing that he cared about was when are you going to fix my son's penis? That's all he cared about. He proceeded to berate the wife for keeping this a secret. It was a whole hot mess. Wow. I, this, I just felt so sorry for that family when they left because this is just a very, very difficult situation. And as the sonographer, you're in a very, very difficult spot, kind of right there in the middle, helping to make these diagnoses or provide the proof for them to make a, I guess, maybe a final decision, quote unquote. Right. Um, right. Th these are exactly the things that I wish the general public or even folks who wonder what do, what does the sonographer do or what is it like to work in this field? And it immediately it goes to babies, right? You guys look at babies all day. Oh my God. It must be so much fun. And it's right. like, my darling, listen, for those of us that do look at babies, I promise you, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. Okay. We leave That's there right. sometimes, you know, our bodies have melted on the floor with our patients and we got to scoop ourselves back up. Um, to go home. Um, compassion fatigue is a real thing. And we see things sure. that are just, wow. And so mm -hmm. can you imagine, you know, this is stuck with you how many years later, oh, you know, I have a couple of, yeah, I have a couple of patients in my mind too, that have just stuck with me for years. You know, they help shape the sonographer I am and the provider that I want to be. But one of the other things uh, in the sonography field is that there's so many ways to innovate. And that's one thing mm -hmm. about you, Lisa, that I want folks to know you are an innovator in this field you're a visionary uh, and it takes one to know one because i've been visionarying right. up in here with some ergo mechanics and soft tissue recovery and all the things to prevent injury um, but you were the first in so many different areas so i'd love for you to share with our listeners some of the ways that you have been the first and some of the ways that you have innovated well i graduated from ultrasound school in 1988 and I had actually started in ultrasound in 1985 until my time had come to go to school it was a lengthy process back then there were only five ultrasound schools 
in the United States at that time. There were others, but they were not well regarded and or they were unaccredited. So that was one thing that I looked for. So when I graduated in 1988 and we had just come out of static scanning into real time scanning and I had my first job back in Rhode Island and um, my supervisor at the time, she's like, oh, my gosh, we got to start training because we don't have sonographers and, you know, we've got to do a better job. And and she understood that. And I'm like, "Okay, well let's we'll start a program we'll start a pilot program and we'll see how that goes and so i realized i said after going through my clinical sites in new york city and then bringing it back here and having a degree in teaching psychology of education with a minor in pre-med sciences i thought there has to be a way to break down the clinical scanning and break it down into small pieces that you can provide competency at or with in order to get to the big picture. So at the time that department, we did everything. Vascular really wasn't a thing there at that time. So we concentrated on OBGYN, abdomen, and cardiac echocardiography. So we, I made up the first clinical curriculum and I took it to the um, CEO of the hospital who approved it. And he, he was just excited, you know, I bet he, he was ecstatic. You brought him a Christmas present. He was said, Ooh, policies and protocols. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And this, you know, and it would help feed into that, of course, you're absolutely right. And, you know, we had a professional component, you have to look professional, you have to speak professionally, you have to have respect for your patients and your coworkers and that sort of thing. So that was the first when then I subsequently brought that same curriculum to other schools and I had published a document a long time ago with the SDMS about it. And uh, when I opened my own school here in 1995, 90, well, 94, 95, it was a gradual process. I instituted that same clinical protocol here and with Trident Technical College when they had the program. Um, I'm on the board of two ultrasound schools, and I fully expect that they will also be using the same clinical competencies um, that I had developed, maybe with some tweaking due to the differences in nature of these students. So that was one of the first things, uh, one of the firsts. So you were um, responsible for me having a hand in my competencies and sweat and like, oh, hope I did good. <laughs> Probably <laughs> somewhere along the line, maybe. Yes. Well, and, thank you, Lisa. <laughs> I owe you a I'm great sorry. deal of my sweat. <laughs> yes. And butterflies in the stomach, no doubt. <laughs> yes. Yes. But when you pass your competency, you're like, oh, thank you. Thank you. Yay. It's such a good feeling. So <laughs> what a, what a wonderful contribution. And competencies are just the norm now, um, especially yeah. for travelers. I mean, you have to pass right. a competency almost for each facility that you right. go to. So 
yeah, you, you set a, you set it up to just kind of run with a wonderful way to actually gauge skill level, critical thinking. Uh, I love it. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Tell me about some well, other, other things that you have, that you've been able to do. I know that there was something going on in the state of South Carolina, which is also where the company that you work for is based. So tell me about what's going down in South Carolina. Oh, uh, well, always battles with insurance companies. That, that seems to be the thing. Now, in the last seven years, some of the insurance companies require sonographers now to be credentialed. So that means that you have to be ARDMS or CCI. Um, They have not really accepted ARRT, although there's a lot of discussion about that. I think it's Um, coming. I think it is too, uh, but they have to do that. But beyond that one requirement, I have to submit you know, case studies and, you know, written reports, examples of my work and things like that, obviously with the patient name and ID removed to be credential. More things that you have to do, because now it's not enough to be competent. Uh, You have to be credentialed as well. Very important. So again, we're not just taking the picture and leaving the patient. We're submitting the pictures. We're having people audit us and go through our exams to is a whole slew of extra stuff when you're a sonographer. That's right. And you hit upon a really important thing is audit. Uh, Audits are particularly treacherous for sonographers in particular because they never send a sonographer. They send somebody else who has no clue you know, they might know what an ultrasound is, but that's where their knowledge stops. That's right. I think that's a great point. Right. And they're told, here's a list of things. And if, if this person doesn't have this list of things on their uh, patient studies, then they're fraudulent and the company has to give the money back or reimburse the insurance companies. (sighs) Now, back in the day, um, when I had my own school I was also scanning so that particular business called Charleston Ultrasound Institute or CUI we had a school we were doing ultrasound research in which the students were exposed to all of that and how was that different and we did patients so we had three things that really the students were actively involved in at that time and one medical group decided to write anonymously to Medicare and accuse me of practicing medicine without a license. Therefore, every patient that I did in the group that I was in at the time where I was stationed, they would be responsible for reimbursing the state Medicaid for probably well over a million dollars. So I took great offense at that. I'm offended just hearing it. (laughs) We had several doctors and yeah, it was terrifying. You know, I had to hire a lawyer. I had to take time off from work. I had to go in there with boxes full of evidence. And so the upshot of the deal was that when I was hired as I was hired on as a sonographer, the business part came a little bit later. 
But the three doctors got together and they said, you know, how do we really assess your competency? Because we fired seven sonographers before you came here. So uh, they gave me an essay test in order to be hired. This was a very challenging test. I was given three hours to complete it. And sweat. it's a good See, thing I brought a very sweat. <laughs> yes, wedding is right. <laughs> I got mine that day, let me tell you. So that was actually entered in as evidence. And wow. it wasn't like a jury. It wasn't like you see on law and order. You know, you just go in this room and you've got maybe an administrative judge, you've got people on one side, people on the other side. And basically it's more of a conversation. And so they just peppered me with questions. And I'm like, you know, present here we go with a here's all the doctor's orders. Here's all his final reports. You know, here's what the uh, insurance paid for. I mean, I had all my T's crossed and I's dotted. And at the like end, a sonographer. yes, exactly. So at the end of that, the judge said to me, I'm going to issue a ruling that we find no wrongdoing. And I said, but sir, I would like to have some of this entered in because the people who made this accusation against me did it anonymously, which is not fair at all. Nope. And they're not here. I don't get to see who my accusers are. And under the law, I have that right. And the judge didn't really know. He said, you know, that is a very good point. But he said, at the end of the day, you are innocent of all charges. You have demonstrated that you can think at the practitioner and treatment level. Mm. You have, you know, you've put in IVs, you've done all these different things. You know, you take up advocacy for your patients. And this this is very well proven by these six boxes of evidence that you brought with you today. And he turned to my lawyer and he said to my lawyer, was this not the easiest case you've defended? And the lawyer's like, yeah, I only had to object once. And I yeah. just took a lot of notes. <laughs> she did all the work. And you know, I, I, I love that you brought up that even the judge spoke about a different level of practitioner. And that's something um, that I've heard feedback from other sonographers as I asked them if there was one thing that you could just change in this industry. A lot of the uh, responses that I get is that we would be considered more of a mid-level practitioner because we have to go over there and give our impressions and really do one-on-one with them. And there's so much with patient history and critical thinking and putting these pieces together. Um, And I like that you brought up that you had to defend yourself because this is something um, that I think a lot of sonographers nowadays have to deal with when it comes to uh, other providers requesting results. You know, we come out of an ER room and they want to know, what did you see? Um, We come out of an ICU room and and all of a sudden there's a bunch, what did you see? What's that? And Mm -hmm. after a while, it's like, hey, listen. We get paid to provide the images and the radiologist gets paid to decide the images. Right. 
Um, and it's not within our scope to diagnose. And so there's right. a lot going on when it comes to legalities of sonographers, especially newer <laughs> ones in the field, because they don't have that experience prior. They're kind of coming into it where it's almost the norm to be bombarded, um, where you really need to keep your mouth quiet. That's not your job. If the doctor is like, hey, you right. need to tell me. You need to be just as gun ho to say, hey, listen, no, I don't. Because if something does go wrong or you make that call, who do you think is going to be defending you in court? Because right. you have now practiced medicine mm -hmm. and you're not going to have, I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how experienced you are. I don't care how many letters you have behind your name. If you are practicing medicine, you are outside of the scope of a diagnostic medical sonographer. Right. And whoever was bombarding you with that information is not going to stand up next to you in court. Right, right. Well, it did, it did ha so happen that the doctors did write letters to the judge um, on my behalf. And, and also what you have to consider in South Carolina, too, is that there are medical provider deserts, just as there are food deserts. And many times you, as a sonographer, you will be put in the position of, you've got to make a decision for the health and welfare of that patient. There is no doctor in the building. They, they might be, you know, in Kenya somewhere across the country uh, or across the world rather, um, or or even someplace across the country at a medical conference and you are there with the nurse by yourself. And I know that most sonographers probably work in hospitals, but occasionally you will find yourself in position in the hospital where you don't have a doctor. Mm. I mean, I can tell you one story where I was scheduled to go to the OR first thing in the morning but we're never supposed to go to the OR without the radiologist. Well, the radiologist who is normally extremely punctual wasn't there. And I knew the patient was already under anesthesia. So I'm like, well, I'm just going to go and get scrubbed in and, you know, maybe she'll come in after me or something, mm -hmm. but I'm still new. I wasn't allowed in the OR without a physician. So I was in a teaching hospital at the time and I saw three radiology residents I explained the situation all three of them refused to come with me refused to come with wow. me so I get to the OR and the nurse was sent into the changing room wanting to know why we weren't in there what was taking so long and I'm like I'm here I'm ready everything's scrubbed in um she's like well just come on in come on that you know let's do this <laughs> we gotta go <laughs> So I'm in there and I, he said, well, where is Dr. XYZ? And I said, I'm not sure that this is really abnormal. I don't know what to do. She's not here yet. So what do you want me to do? And he says, well, what about your residents? And I said, flat out. I asked three of them on the way up here and three of them refused to come with me. So I'm here um, with the neurosurgeon. Um, so anyway, uh, the neurosurgeon made the decision to go ahead because the patient at this point had been under anesthesia for longer than what they felt comfortable with. And the procedure hadn't even started yet. Right. So he said to me, Lisa, do you feel comfortable scrubbing in? 
And I said, absolutely. I did the prelim scrub in, in the changing room. And so I did, and I double gloved and came in. Now I was sweating bullets. I was just going to say it, was it? Uh (laughs) And he says, okay, now you're going to put the probe on the C-spine. Now it wasn't even the spine. They were going to open up the actual bony part of the spine so that you could get to the cord. And it was the cord that they were interested in. Oh, wow. So meanwhile, he's instructing the uh, nurse to have the attending physician paged overhead. Well, they paged her. We could all hear it several times. No answer. Now, this was so out of character for her. So we finished the procedure. And by now, I was just perspiring through every piece of clothing I had on. And I was a nervous wreck because I figured I'd probably get written up when I got back downstairs. And I was very nervous about that. And I was just sitting in the in the dressing room and all was said and done. And I hear the knock on the door and I thought, oh, Lord, this is it. I'm in trouble now. And they said, no, it's Dr. X, Y and Z. He said, I, do you mind if I come in and talk to you for a minute? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm decent. You know, you can come in. And he sat down and he said, I, I gathered that this was extremely stressful for you, although you didn't show it. And he said, but you know, at the end of the day, you have to consider the patient and their well-being. And that's what you did. That's right. You performed admirably. I don't know that the attending physician would have done anything any differently than you did. He said, but we're all very concerned now because she's not even in the building. We don't know where she is. And she was a little bit of a woman. So long story short, she was in the building. She was on a stretcher she had gotten into a car accident on the top of a two-lane bridge trying to get in to do this case she was in the hospital literally in the hospital as a patient wow and was unable to respond so i always say never say never sonographers you're gonna be put in difficult situations where you have to kind of man up and figure out where your priorities are. Are you going to be fearful of the outcome or are you going to do right by your patients? I love that, Lisa. I love that. And thought at process. the end of the day, I did not get written up. Uh, well, the three ra- the radiology residents that refused to come with me got written up. <laughs> hey, I like that. I <laughs> know. <laughs> I'll show you to not come with me. That's right. So how did you go from this uh, this exciting role as a sonographer? You're in the OR, you're doing the things, you're you're making the right decisions to advocate for what's best for that patient in that moment. How do you go from that excitement and perspiration to applications? Uh, Well, this is a subject that you are an expert on. It's called musculoskeletal injuries. Mm, that's yeah. always the reason. Yeah. yeah. My neurologist said to me um, in 2019, you have reached the end of the line. Wow. You want to be able to dress yourself in retirement. You will quit now. And I could tell by his expression, he was more than a little ticked off that I had quit before that time. Right. But 
you know, certain life circumstances sometimes prevent you from doing what you know you have to do and you do what you must. Right. So I didn't know exactly what direction I was going to go in. And I had been working applications part-time PRN with the same company for three years prior to that time. And, you know, this is where God is good. And I just sat down and prayed and I said, Lord, you, you know, only you are going to figure this one out. And if you cannot heal me to the extent that I need to be healed, then you have to guide me. And two days later, my boss, W.C. Peeler, called me in and he said, oh, I just wanted to pick your brain and find out if you'd like to go full time. Wow. And I, I didn't, it was just, I just was shocked. And I, and my first words out of my mouth is when do I start? <laughs> so th- I, I was essentially forced to make that decision. It almost seems like there needs to be a subset to the industry when you have reached the end of your body. Um, and I'm hoping that this is just not the norm going forward. You know, we have a 90% incidence rate of having sonographers be symptomatic in pain, which is astronomical. Like what industry can you nearly be at a hundred percent rate of injury and, and, right. and not have any measures in place to mitigate that risk, um, right. which of course now we do with ultra safe ultrasounds. And I'm so honored to be in this role. Um, but it was similar, you know, when, when you reach the end of yourself and you go, all right, God, listen up, either you take me through this and bring me to the other side so that I can continue on this path and this lane or you go ahead and guide me into my new lane so that I can serve in a way that mm-hmm. still does the work that I feel called to do. And so I love that, unfortunately, that you had to go that way, but I, I love that you were guided and, and it didn't take very long mm-hmm. from, from prayer to answer. Right, um, right. And it seems that this is just a natural pivot for so many sonographers. You're either going to pivot into academia and you're going to teach, or you're going to be a clinical instructor or preceptor, um, or you're going to go ahead into applications or you, or you may work on equipment. You know, there's, there's so many different ways that you can serve, but it seems that the most common reason for that pivot are those work-related musculoskeletal injuries Yes. And, and this is kind of what mystifies me a little bit is there's not enough applications, preceptors or teaching jobs out there for the number of people who are having a lot of physical difficulties. And given what we know, there should be some form of advocacy for us to fill like patient advocate roles. We know a lot about billing we could, you know, easily transition to some of these other things. But what I found is that a lot of hiring managers, they, they just don't want to hear it. If it isn't fitting some sort of predetermined algorithm, then you're automatically not qualified. And I think that there really needs to be a huge awareness movement to educate hiring managers, HR managers and the like to how valuable a well-trained sonographer can be in many different areas. 
sonographers have a wealth of compassion for their patients. They know a lot about how to maneuver within the structure of medicine that can benefit patients. We're great at taking histories. Now, why they haven't sent us in to take H&Ps, I'll never know. But um, they're, you know, it's Ultrasound Awareness Month in October. And that's, that's one of the main things I'd like to put out there is that there has to be an avenue for, like you said, when we are at the end of body life in sonography, we're still thinking, we're still productive, we're still intelligent human beings. Why can't we be utilized in that way? But the other crisis is I went to a conference on Saturday and one of the speakers asked, you know, how many of you have been working, you know, around 20 years and, you know, the majority of us raised our hands. How many of you have been working less than five years and three people raised their hand? And I, that was an aha moment for me. And I, I looked around and if all of those sonographers go out due to MSK injuries or back injuries, neck injuries, whatever, only three people can't fill all those spots. And they you need cannot have- replace a sonographer who's got decades of experience inside right. of them. That's you just can't That's because this is not a field that you can study the book until you're blue in the face and be an expert when you walk in the room. If you haven't had hands-on time for a long time and to see the anatomy variations and, and I mean, one of the most comforting things for me as a student and as a newbie was when I would go get the seasoned tech who's been in the game for 20, 30 years and bring them in. And they were like, I don't know. And I'm like, yay, you don't know either. (laughs) Great. But that let me know. Yeah. Validation. I will never stop learning because there's still going to be things, whether you're one, two, three, five, 40 years in the game that you may still get tripped up on. And there is no replacing the brain of a sonographer, of a diagnostic sonographer who has been in it for that long. And to have them out of the game and not use their brain because their body was like, listen, you didn't tell me my rotator cuff was going to pair in half when I was scanning. Um, One of the things I hear a lot, um, and as so many people hear is ergonomics, ergonomics, ergonomics. But that's just simply, number one, it's half the battle. Okay, it's not enough. Mm -hmm. We have to understand the biomechanics of our body. You know, you said Mm -hmm. that it was your neurologist who was like, "Eh, and that's enough. And so you can have sonographers, particularly echo is a big one when it comes to carpal tunnel Mm -hmm. and things with the wrist. And they're trying to what's going on with my wrist? What's going on with my wrist? Not realizing it's coming from their cervical spine. Yes, it's up there in the neck. And so they just continue to do the damage thinking, you know, they're trying to heal their wrist and all, all the while they don't have the education with how their body is actually working. Um, and ergonomics is the science of fitting the job to the worker. We can't do that in ultrasound. We have to fit the worker to the job. There's too many Mm -hmm. specialties, you know? Um, so I hundred 
thousand percent agree with you, Lisa, that there has to be more education, especially for hiring managers, employers, HR departments to say, hey, listen, if this sonographer, this highly skilled, credentialed sonographer is not able to pick up that probe anymore, that's just their hands and the neck down. That's not really going to function in healthcare. You need right. to take advantage of the neck up now because there's That's a right. lot of information in there. That's right. That's right. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, in different places, they'd be like, oh, well, just hand the probe to the nurse or, you know, just just have the MA punch the buttons fast. And I'm like, uh, that that doesn't mm. fly. I'm sorry. That's not going to behoove the patient at all. No, no. And it's in many instances, it's not legal. Yeah. Yeah, And you want reimbursement and things like that, too. You need to have a credentialed sonographer with that probe in their hand, not an MA who is going to go through some protocols um, and take pictures. It's just not going to get the job done. And and not in diagnostic ultrasound. Now, if you're, you know, an ultrasound tech and you work, you know, in non-diagnostics and you just want to take some pictures and, hey, you go about your business. (laughs) If you want a diagnostic study from a diagnostic sonographer who is credentialed, who is trained, who is going to be able to critically think their way through that protocol, know when to pause it, know when they have to go on a whole nother tangent um, to be able to get that patient to a diagnosis, to a treatment plan, then you better make sure that you hire the right person and don't try to, to, to cut corners because, uh, cut corners are gonna, you're going to get what you give with that. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. And that's why, Joanne, I gave you so much credit for starting this venture, because I think you need to be in every single school here and around the world, for that matter, that this has to be a priority issue. You know, businesses always fear that on the job work injury or the OSHA reports or the EEOC reports or what, you know, depending on what state you live in. And um, they need to probably fear that a little bit more and make sure that our ergonomics and our bodies are protected. That's what's going to lower your workers' cotton claims and your short and long-term disabilities. And the first formal educational setting that I started at um, that has started to utilize our services and our education is Dallas College. Um, They are taking our ergo mechanics course and putting it right alongside their physics course. So while you are learning that novology, you are learning the cognitive effort and the dynamic behavior to keep your body going. So in a plane, a train uh, with a fox in a box with some socks, I mean, (laughs) you tell me where to go. um, And that's where I'm going to be. I will speak where I need to. I will train who I need to. Um, I have a very vocal uh, personality and I'm very passionate about this. So you tell me where to go. That's where I'll be. Awesome. Well, I do have a board meeting tomorrow and I can guarantee you this is going to be brought up. (laughs) Beautiful. I love board meetings. I talk on them all the time. The last one I did was uh, an OSHA stakeholder meeting. That was four hours of, uh, yeah, and I got up in there and I'm going to tell you, I had some things to say when it comes to just the availability of resources on OSHA's website for us. I mean, the the e-tool, the sonography e-tool was last updated in 2008. I'm like, what is that? What? (laughs) I don't... 
I don't even own clothes from 2008. Like it's, <laughs> you need to update your stuff. <laughs> so um, we'll work with just about anybody who has the mindfulness and the awareness to say, hey, listen, we have a serious exposure risk here for an entire industry and we need to address it. And it doesn't need to just happen on the job. It, it needs to start in the training and in formal yeah. education. So yes, it does. Yes. It does. Back in the day when I was in ultrasound school, ergonomics was never even addressed. You just had to man up, get in there and get the job done. And that was it. And such is life for so many industries. But the good thing is now in this post-pandemic setting and this different world that we're living in, folks are realizing that safety matters. It does. It, it does. really does. And when you don't optimize it, guess what? You're going to have everything that goes along with when you have not taken safety seriously. That's right. That's so right. Hopefully now folks ears are more open. Hopefully employers are tired of spending $120 billion annually right. on our injuries um, because that's just not good business. No, it's a, it's, <laughs> Ultra, it's, yeah. The ultrasound is a cash cow for a lot of practices and I get it. However, if you're going to continue with turnover of your sonographers and like we discussed earlier, you cannot replace the brain of a well-seasoned sonographer. You just can't. Yeah. So keep them healthy because you want yeah. them there for your patients and to train the newbie who just got there, who's only been scanning for a couple of years. You want that. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Well, Lisa, it has been such a pleasure to take this time with you. Thank you so much for spilling some tea in sonography and uh, and bringing some awareness during this month. We need every month should be ultrasound awareness month, but we're going to take advantage while we have it in October to let folks know what's it really like to be a diagnostic sonographer, especially in 2021. That's right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lisa. We'll talk again soon and be blessed, darling. Be blessed. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Sonographers Spill the Tea. If you want to continue to get all of the tea in sonography, make sure that you join us on all the social platforms. Go ahead, like, comment, and subscribe to wherever you're listening to this podcast from. And visit us on our website, ultrasafeultrasounds.com, where if you're needing any services in sonography, such as staffing or safety, I'm your girl. I'll see you guys next time on another episode of Sonographers Spill the Tea.